is the best of times. This statement could be true for learning about trauma and resilience through this COVID pandemic. On today's episode of Regulated and Relational, Julie and Ginger reflect back on some of the lessons they've learned personally and professionally during the last two years. Let's listen in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Julie Beam. And I'm Ginger Healy. And we're here today to get a little bit reflective. We're recording it right now at the first part of January. You're going to hear this in February. So it's kind of a kickoff and a reflection of what our lives have been like collectively, all of us, this last couple of years with COVID and where we are as a society where Ginger and I are personally in terms of building resilience around all of this. We're just going to reflect on some of the things that we've learned in the last couple of years and some of the things that we've talked about on the podcast over this last year that are making a difference in our lives and just share with you our thoughts about all of these things. Right, Ginger? Yeah, it's even hard to know where to begin. I have been very contemplative this last, you know, few weeks as the year has ended and a new one's beginning. And I've been sitting with this concept of and that I can feel, you know, overwhelmed and sometimes depressed and stressed and Other times I can also feel inspired and hopeful and excited. And it's kind of this back and forth and balancing out these feelings and feeling what I'm feeling, you know, leaning into it rather than running away from it and just kind of sitting and reflecting. That's where I have been. So I think it's a perfect time to talk about all of that. Exactly. And as a therapist said once to us, it may sound trite, but it rings true. There's no such thing as bad feelings. Feelings are what they are, right? That's an important thing to remember. And it's really at the core of what we all have to do is be able to recognize our feelings and honor them good or bad, right? Yeah. And maybe even kind of boil them down to what they really are. It's so natural and normal to not enjoy the bad feelings, the the pain and discomfort and not want to lean into them. But one thing that I really have learned this year is that if I numb those bad feelings, if I run away from them and ignore them and try to, you know, not feel them, what I end up doing at the same time is numbing the good feelings. That is something that I've decided I'm not willing to do. That in order to feel the good and really embrace them and marinate in them and feel that utter joy, I can't do that without feeling the opposite of that as well. And so that's something that I'm really kind of contemplating and trying to teach my children, you know, life is full of ups and downs. And yeah, we do have some pain that we go through, but that it's temporary and you can get through it. This is something that you're feeling, but it's not permanent and you have the capacity to kind of lean in and feel it and work through it. You don't have to do it alone but that we can talk about it and we can handle it and we can overcome the bad so that we can, you know, find joy in all of the good as well. 
Well, I think it's so important that we look at feeling those big, bad, heavy feelings. And collectively, we've had a lot of those in the last couple of years, whatever they are, whether they're fear, whether they're anger, whether they're sadness, whether they're grief, all of those things are hard for us to sit with. But like you said, if we numb those, if we ignore them, if we tamp them down, we can't feel the joy and the love and all the things that are the big positive opposites of those things. One of the things that has come up for me thinking about COVID, thinking about this pandemic is thinking about it in a collective global way. And the only other thing I can think of to compare it to would be the depression. And I've been thinking a lot about my grandparents who lived through the depression and would do telltale things like save their tinfoil in a drawer, you know, because they knew that there might not be enough tinfoil and all the little tells that we'll have as a society of things that we do. Now we'll probably always have enough toilet paper and wipes, right? (laughs) For the rest of our lives, because you never know when you're going to need those again. So we'll be thinking about that, but even more importantly, collectively, the character and the inner strength that sometimes emerged from that generation. Right now, the media is showing us all kinds of chaos, people at far extremes doing crazy extreme things. And it sort of adds to that feeling that we're all out of control. But I think the truth is that a lot of people are building some inner strength through this suffering. And even while we don't want to, I mean, a lot of times we're just sort of drugged through that, right? We have to get through it in order to build that inner strength. But I'm just wondering if on the other side of this 10 years, 15 years, maybe even 50 years from now, our grandchildren will look at us and go, yeah, my grandparents grew up during the pandemic or they had survived the pandemic and they're now doing the following things or setting the following kinds of examples If anything, it does tend to help us focus in on what's really important and what matters. Here's another truth about emotions, that if you can, in fact, feel them and experience them in a safe way, in a safe environment where you know you are going to get through it and you know you are going to, you know, pass through it and come out on the other side and, you know, bring forward, become more resilient, experiencing them in that way. That's how you find the joy. If you don't, what happens is you actually pass those dark emotions off onto others. Like if you can perpetuate cruelty that way. So it is so important as parents, as teachers, as caregivers to create that safe environment for those feelings, because we can't stop the grief and the loss and all the things that we are dealing with. We don't have that magic wand. So we have to accept that and create a safe, calm environment for those emotions to be dispelled. Because once we start, you know, blaming, and I see that a lot, that's how we discharge that pain and discomfort. Mm -hmm. A lot of times is through blaming rather than kind of taking responsibility and looking at it as a growth opportunity and leaning into it it changes the outcome. And we are in control of that. So understanding that I think is so important. Yeah, I think that's huge. I think I want to sit with that idea for a minute that when everything feels really out of control, one of the things we can control is 
what we do with the emotions that we have. So if an emotion comes in, if a dark thought or a negative, we want to blame someone else comes in, we can work towards holding that captive and say, why am I blaming these people? What is it that I can do to make myself feel better, to make this situation better? What's within my control and what's not within my control so I can turn that loose. A lot of times with my daughter and having a lot of anxiety, we talk about what you should worry about versus what you shouldn't worry about. You know, you can't worry about the things that you can't control. You know, so you need to just lay that down because it's exhausting and it keeps you from being able to control the things that you can control. Yeah. And for me, sometimes it's now as simple as me really asking myself and answering in an honest way, what is this really about? Because most of the time it's about something that I'm holding on to a fear of, you know, that lack of control or whatever, or some deep grief that I've carried along the way and haven't really worked through, you know, that fear of repetition of that pain happening again. So Mm -hmm. if I really can be honest with myself and understand where is this coming from, then I can work through it a lot more quickly and look at the big picture, you know, just like I mentioned about keeping that perspective for my kids that this too shall pass. It doesn't feel like it sometimes, but it will, this will end at some point. Exactly. Well, we want to hold that thought and we want the listeners to hold that thought too, because it's an important one. And at the same time, we want them to know that we're not saying that trivial. That's not a trivial trivial thing that we're saying, because we're talking about some really big grief and loss things for a lot of people. All of us can name a grief and loss by now. Probably everyone who's listening to this podcast has lost someone that was dear to them to this pandemic. They've also lost friendships and lost situations due to the chaos around this pandemic, right? And lost other opportunities, even if there's something as simple as lost a job or lost an opportunity to go somewhere or participate in some way because of the pandemic. We've all had a lot of loss. So I really want us to do a deeper dive on this whole concept of holding space for each other, because I think it's hugely important. It is hugely important. And I'm so glad you made that clarification. The last thing I would ever want to do is trivialize, you know, something this big. I do want children and adults, everyone to know that those feelings that you almost feel like you're going to burst, you know, that we can work through those. And one of the ways to do that is through holding space. There is a book called The Art of Holding Space. The author is Heather Platt, and we will reference that in our show notes. We have talked about holding space before because it is such an important concept to us, but I want to read her definition to you just to remind you. We've gotten a lot of feedback that this has been a concept that has really resonated with a lot. I do think it's good to talk about it for a minute. So what does it mean to hold space for somebody else? It means that we're willing to walk alongside another person in whatever journey they're on without judging them, without making them feel inadequate, without trying to fix them or trying to impact the outcome. When we hold space for other people, we open our hearts. We offer unconditional support and we let go of judgment and control. Boy, if we could all do that and master that, you know, what a different place this world would be because it's not an easy thing to do. I don't know for someone like me who wants to be a fixer, 
to kind of move through the difficult feelings quicker. It's a challenge, but I will say that the more I work on it and the better I get at it, the most amazing results, you know, that I see. I think it's hard to hold space. I either want to fix it like you do. Ginger, you're a fixer because that's exactly who you are. I'm not sure I have been. My life has, you know, sort of led me that path. I'm a more suck it up buttercup kind of girl. <laughs> so somewhere in the middle of trying to hold space, if I'm going to fall short, it's going to be for me to go, man, just get it together. Let's move on. You know, I've had enough. And I have to remind myself that it's not my timing. If somebody is going through something and they really need me to hold open that window of just witnessing that, of just listening to that that I shouldn't try to shut that window. It's their time, right? I'll give you a couple examples of holding space. And you've already mentioned some, but just that listening. And it could be without giving feedback, without solving the problem, just being there, letting that silence happen, letting them just feel their feelings. And then embracing that curiosity of what's really going on here, what's kind of going on underneath these feelings and behaviors. So that's when you can say things like, well, tell me more about that. And just, you know, being present, being attuned and just sitting there, sending that message that I see you, I hear you, I am with you, not running away, not running away from the emotions, the physical aspect of it, but also that emotional and cognitive, you know, being attuned and present and One concept that really struck me as I was learning more about holding space was this concept of hijacking space. And I had to really sit with this because I thought I was good at holding space and I still think I am in certain ways. But what happens sometimes when you really try and intently to hold space is that you end up hijacking the space because you want to fix it. So you offer solutions to the problem rather than letting the person come to that on their own. They just maybe don't want you to solve it, but just be there. So when it comes to grief, you know, like in a situation where there's a funeral, I often hear people say things of comfort that are meant for comfort, but it often hijacks the space. For example, if you're saying something like, well, they're in a better place now, you know, that could be hijacking that space of grief. And you want to say things that are helpful versus hurtful. And I know that people don't intend to be hurtful, but sometimes in our effort to rush to help make the situation feel better, it turns that way. And we do that by minimizing or by offering and pointing out a silver lining. You know, sometimes there's not a silver lining. We don't want to take away that moment of it hurts. I often hear people with again, good intentions, but when someone shares something painful, if you're ready to jump in and share your own story that Mm -hmm. is similar, that really can hijack that person's space, you know, giving religious advice or other advice where it's not necessarily needed. So I just wanted to kind of sit with that. Then I wanted to move on to talk about within this holding space, that we can hold space for ourselves. I would love for everybody to get really good at. We talk about holding space for each other and for our children a lot in therapeutic parenting language. And it's like a muscle 
we know that you have to be regulated to do it, right? You can't be dysregulated and holding space for somebody else. And if That's what true. that person says triggers you, it makes it harder. And when you were talking about at a funeral, when I go into a funeral or a grief situation, my thinking brain has to decide, first of all, I have to be regulated so that my thinking brain can decide this because otherwise I'm offline, right? That my thinking brain is going to be in charge of the interaction. I'm trying to figure out how to break this down for people, you know, so that they can get started if they're struggling, you know, where do I start with this holding space? And so I go into this situation where I am actively thinking what's going on inside of the grieving person's head. Like what are the big feelings that they are feeling? So I'm practicing my compassion and my empathy as much as I can so that I don't try to fix their problem because I can't fix their problem. I mean, like if I logically think about it, I can't fix the problem that the loved one is gone. So in order to hold space it is literally what it says. I have to hold that space in my brain open for whatever they say to me. I have to be curious about why they're saying that I have to fight my own desire to fill the silence, to fix it, to solve it, because you think you have to say something to the grieving family, to the people who have lost their loved ones. I mean, I know that whole feeling when you're there, you're like, I have to say something and I need it to be meaningful. And so then I end up saying all the wrong things. Instead, your presence is what's meaningful, just acknowledgement of their loss and that I'm here for you, you know, whatever it is you need and let them fill the void with anything that they want to say to you or not. They may not be able to say anything, but just your physical presence. Am I getting there, Ginger? On some Yeah, I think that's so good. I don't know why as a society we are uncomfortable with silence, but we do need to recognize that there's so much good that can happen within silence because a lot of times people are processing and processing at a slower rate when grief hits. So we're just not moving as quickly physically or mentally. And so when someone says something to us and we're ready to go on to the next thing, no, wait, let's sit in this for a little bit, you know, and let's process this and let's really dig deep into what could happen and what needs to happen. And and oftentimes we don't know, and that's okay that we can be okay, not saying the right thing or not doing the right thing. When my father passed away I don't remember a lot of it and that's Mm -hmm. what happens too is because so much happens and because the processing is taking place at a different rate that's just what happened and there's nothing wrong with that so we don't need to fill the space when there's a lot well great loss like that and so many people have had significant losses but just like you said you often don't remember, but what you do remember is somebody who said the wrong thing, the thing that triggered <laughs> some big emotion in you, big negative, yeah. emotion, whether it was shame or anger or fear or whatever, you then do remember that. So for me, part of learning to hold space was exactly that learning to zip up what I wanted to say to fix it or make it feel better, usually make it feel better for me because I'm, I'm trying to be pathetic. And part of that empathy is taking on that other person's emotion. And it's really uncomfortable to feel their grief, right? You have to be ready to sort of carry some of that weight 
without trying to get rid of it somehow. I mean, I think a lot of times the reason I would hijack a holding space was to make it easier for me. That's just the truth of the way that that works a lot of times. And so you need to figure out how to do that. And the thing about holding space is that you don't get it right a lot of the time, but you keep trying and Mm -hmm. get better at it when you practice it. I like what you said about bearing one another's burdens. And Mm -hmm. there's something so poignant about doing that. And it's a little abstract. It it doesn't tell Mm -hmm. you exactly how, because it's different for every person and it's different in the moment and in the situation. But I think if we do keep that bigger picture in mind, that this is our goal is to bear another's burdens, to mourn with those that mourn and to just be there and not set a prescription as to what that looks like, but just let it happen. Even if it's a little sloppy, mm-hmm. I think people know where we're coming from. And for me, that's good enough that if you are willing just to take a moment out of your time and be with me, Oh, that goes a long way. That really helps in the healing. Yeah. So I'm thinking now, as you pointed that piece out, that the opposite of that is joy, celebrating with people and having joy. And then then that made me think about the podcast we did with Sissy White and and her joy stalking and how elusive joy was for me in the middle of all of the dark times of my life. And that I kept thinking, I don't understand this joy, you know, and I would look at it from a religious perspective and I'd hear sermons on it. And I'm like, I don't understand where it is or where you find joy. And I was sort of like the little girl in um, the Grinch, right? Like, it's like, where are you joy? Where is the Christmas joy, right? Where is this joy? But the joy is really sort of the opposite of that bearing others' burdens and, and their heavy grief. It is also a communal thing it's hard to have joy by yourself. Joy needs to be shared too. Sort of like the grief needs to be shared. The grief is shared and you relieve some of their burden. But if somebody else, you know, is feeling joy, the best way for that joy to get larger is in a sharing sort of thing, you know, and I want to be the person that others will share their joy with. So carrying some of their burden is the trade-off in that, right? I mean, when we're looking at emotions, it's kind of a balanced thing that if you can be there to help hold space for somebody's burdens and their grief and their negative feelings, then you also will likely be somebody that they can turn to and celebrate that joy and feel that deeper positive emotion, kind of like that whole don't numb it, you know, so that you can feel it, but it is a relational thing on top of it being an individual thing, right? Yeah. It's creating that safe space, you know, where you're free to be your best self and your worst self, you know, it'll be okay either way. I had this experience a couple of nights ago, one of my closest friends, father was on hospice. And so she quickly drove the few hours to come up and say her goodbyes. And then after he passed, she came over and sat with me and we felt that grief and heaviness. And my son, my 10 year old kept coming over saying, can we play a game? He was on winter break. And of course he wanted to play a game. And I was like, I don't think we're really feeling like playing a game right now, you know? And finally we just 
uh, maybe out of exhaustion, you know, of turning him down, we said, sure, we'll play a quick game. And we ended up, it was that game where you put the mouth guards in your mouth and stretch oh. your mouth out really <laughs> big so that you look <laughs> absolutely ridiculous and you can't understand what the person's saying. And I don't think I have ever laughed harder in my life. We laughed so hard that we were just dripping tears and saliva and everything. Uh, that's <laughs> great. Disgusting. And it was exactly what we needed, you know, just dispelling those feelings, completing that stress cycle. We've talked about that this year in this podcast, how important that was, but I needed a nudge from a 10 year old to get there and bring out that playful side that I know how important that is, but I just wasn't somehow ready to jump into it didn't feel right and now looking back I'm like that should have been the first thing you know a poignant moment I think that's such an important lesson that whole idea of play and relational play that children sometimes go right to I mean he was probably feeling the the morning tension in the room right he might have been able to put his finger on what it was as a child but he was like okay so if everybody's feeling super sad what are we gonna do let's play a game I mean it's, it's childlike and yet it's so wise it's like okay what can we do relationally together to make ourselves feel better and that's one of the things that we can do and I don't know about you but that's come up two or three times as a quarantine family that we sometimes are doing fun and silly things we'll play games we'll you know watch a movie that just makes us laugh and laugh and laugh and all of those things and that's not denying our feelings or pushing them aside it's relieving them a little bit and giving us maybe the capacity to talk about the big heavy stuff because we need a break from the heavy sometimes right now and so play is so important children know that educators i hope recognize that for children that the play is important and even us grown-ups need the chance to play and laugh. Right. It's critical actually in order to process developmental stages. And it's something we talk about a lot. And it was just a gift to be able to be reminded of how important and how healing it really is. I love the concept that play is a gift and that we should think about giving ourselves and each other that gift. I do want to go back to ourselves, though, because one of the hardest parts of holding space for other people is ourselves get in the way and our big feelings get in the way. And that's where that whole concept of holding space for ourselves and having self-compassion is really at the crux of when we started brainstorming this particular episode, for me, that was at the crux of what I wanted us to talk about was that whole concept of self-compassion, because we're two years into this COVID and we've all survived in some way. We're probably not thriving. We're more like in survival mode and we're thinking, okay, how am I going to handle more? Because there seems to be more coming. And the only way we're going to handle it is by helping ourselves, you know, by, by taking better care of ourselves. And I say that and half the audience has a big self-care eye roll at this point, right? But it's true. I mean, we know it from the Nagoski sisters book, right? About completing that whole stress cycle. We're going to get to hear Amelia do that at our conference this year, talk to us about that whole burnout book and completing the stress cycle. But folks, we have got to 
commit to taking care of ourselves in a holding space, self-compassion sort of way, because if we don't, then we're not going to be there to hold space for everybody else, right? It's really that serious of a concept. Every time we speak, we always end with it because it is the last thing we want everyone to have on their minds, how critical it is to give yourself rest. And of course, I'm talking about physical rest, but so much more than physical rest is that rest from the cares and worries of the world. I love the concept of holding space for yourself, you know, and treating yourself how you would want to treat others. And even I find myself doing this to myself that I don't have time. I've got to hurry and kind of get through things. So I've got to solve this problem quick rather than really sitting into what's going on. What do I need? So I hijack my own space. (laughs) I tell myself to suck it up all the time. And I'm like, that's so not healthy. I've heard others call it like you're feeding the wrong wolf. You've got to do what you need. Otherwise it just comes back. You know, my most favorite moment, one of my most favorite moments last year was when we attended the conference Preventing Child Abuse America and Nadine Burke Harris spoke and she said, you know, there's that whole concept when you talk about self-care of putting the oxygen mask over your face in the airplane. And that's a good analogy, but she said, you guys, oxygen mask, give me a break. We are like scuba divers that are drowning underwater and scuba divers need gear. They need oxygen tanks Mm -hmm. and they have to have a diving partner and they have to have all the right equipment Mm -hmm. and they have to have a lot of training and they have to have backups and plans. Otherwise what happens? You drown, you literally die. And, and we are seeing that the ACEs study taught us that we do not work through those adverse childhood experiences. It can shorten our lives and self-care really is one of the ways And I like to say self-compassion more than self-care and it's community care. We cannot do this alone. It's not about bubble baths and chocolate. Those are great, but that is so, it just falls short. That's what Nadine was telling us is that those kind of things fall short. We really have to do things like care for ourselves and set boundaries and give ourselves all the love and rest and grace that we give to others. No, I love that. And we even early on in some of our therapeutic parenting training sort of talked that same way about being like emergency workers, you know, taking a break from the front lines and making sure that you had the training. You know, we hope that in some ways this podcast is part of that training. It gives you an opportunity to reflect on some of these concepts. And we try to bring forth what people like Dr. Burke Harris and others have said in the area of self-compassion, Kristen Neff, N-E-F-F, she's the, you know, she's definitely the expert in that. Her, her website is actually self, self, dash compassion.org. So it's, it's a great place to go and reflect on that. And she sort of, sort of like what we were talking about breaks down self-compassion into two different things, tender self-compassion, the, the, the holding space piece of that, right. The being with yourself, comforting yourself, reassuring yourself, um, uh, 
all, all of those things. And then there's what she calls the fear self-compassion. And she um, metaphorically likens this to the tender self-compassion is like a parent soothing you, right? You're, you're, you're soothing yourself. You're the mama bear who, who cuddles the, you know, who cuddles the cub, but the fear self-compassion is like that same mama bear who protects the cub when it's threatened or, or when it's, you know, when, it, when something as challenging is happening. And I think that, I mean, I think that analogy is really interesting that we need to be accepting of ourselves and what we feel you know, because it's real, whatever it is that we, that we feel, um, we're going to hold space for that. We're going to, we're going to like be curious about where that came from, whether it was something in our childhood or some other time that we haven't really, you know, addressed that problem before. And so we're going to, we're going to look at that, but at the same time, we're also going to have fierce self-compassion to take action to stop things from, you know, from burdening us, like we're going to protect ourselves by drawing boundaries, right, and learning how to say no, if there, if something is too much. And in this season of COVID, a lot of things that we used to take on, you know, a lot of additional things we used to take on are too much. I mean, in some cases, the kids are at home with us when we didn't expect them to be at home with us. Our job situations are different. So, so we have to draw boundaries in our lives clearly, you know, what, what is, what is important to us. We also have to be able to say yes to what we need, right. And not just keep tamping that down. And some of us are really good at tamping down our own needs to move on with what everybody else needs or says that they need or, or that the ways that we think we need to fix things for the ones we love. Right. And it's a hard choice sometimes for us to say, no, I need a break. No, I need this to be this way instead of the way that it's been before, maybe all of our lives. Maybe we, you know, maybe we, I just need us to not be doing all these extra activities or whatever that is. And we have to be authentic about that. And that's part of that fierce self-compassion is giving ourselves permission to do that. Oh, I love that. I love that. I just, you know, setting boundaries is exactly like you said, it's very hard, but it's very necessary. And it doesn't mean that you don't care. You know, the intention behind it is what really matters because it can actually really create space for more positive experiences you know, that's when you're talking about saying yes to what we need as well. And it gets easier the more we do it. That's one thing that I'm learning because I don't know, there's such a big, like, I don't know what the word is like bump for me to get over. But once I get over that, it really does get easier because it's so important to protect ourselves and our time and our needs and our mental health. Um, it's so supportive of mental health, but it, it protects us and it protects others. So uh, definitely a goal for the new year for me. That's on my list. I'll say, yeah, I'm going to be working on that as well. Um, you all are listening to the last episode in this first season of our podcast. We are going to take a break because as many of you know, we have a large conference ahead of us, the Creating Trauma Sensitive Schools Conference. We're super excited about that. Um, we hope if you um, are hearing about this for the first time that you'll look into it quickly um, to join us on February 20th through 22nd in Houston or um, the the end of that week, the 24th or 25th virtually. 
Um, and then we'll be back with you with episodes starting the first part of April for season two. We're going to have some more interesting interviews with people that we know and talking about uh, some of these concepts that we haven't gotten to yet that have to do with staying regulated and helping to build relationships and build resilience in ourselves and others and help with the healing of trauma. We also hope that if something that we've said in this podcast or the other episodes spurs some thoughts in you, some questions in you, that you will reach out to us. You can do that directly through an email to heart at attachedtrauma.org. We'll put other ways to get to us in our show notes, but we would love to hear your feedback. Is what we're saying resonating with you? Is it confusing to you in some way? Do you have questions or ideas of things that we need to cover in season two or beyond? Because we would love to hear your feedback on this and really want to make this podcast useful to you in 2022. Yeah, you know what my 10-year-old told me to tell all of you listeners is to smash that like button. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Smash the like button, share this podcast with other people, especially if it's helping you. I mean, we would love to hear that it was helping you, but it's even more important to pay it forward and share it with others because we want people to know about these ideas and these concepts. So happy new year. And we'll see you again in April. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational, and it wraps up season one for our podcast. We're taking a production break during our Creating Trauma-Sensitive Schools Conference, and we'll be back with season two starting April 12th. In season two, we'll dive deeper into what it means to be regulated and relational and how that helps to heal trauma and promote growth and resilience. Season two will include many experts in the field of trauma, attachment, and resilience. Now is a great time to catch up on any episode you missed and to invite others to listen in. A special thanks to Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment and Trauma Network, visit our website at www.attachedtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Lorraine Schneider. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again in April.